This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 71, Murder of W.A. Scott. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. Things have been very busy in my world. I've been giving private tours, public presentations, and connecting with incredible people and opportunities. And I'm doing all of this while working full-time and parenting full-time and now wifing and stepmomming. So it goes without saying, some weeks are harder than others to produce episodes. This week, I cheated a little bit and I took another mini episode out of my Patreon archives to share with you guys. But no fear to my wonderful Patreon contributors because I have taken the previous notes and found tons of extra details and facts to add. Today, we're jumping on the true crime bandwagon and sharing the story of W.A. Scott and his unsolved murder. In episode 49, I covered most of Atlanta's historical African-American newspapers, the most well-known being The Daily World. Started as a weekly publication, the paper would go semi-weekly and then eventually become the first black daily newspaper ever. William Alexander Scott was born in 1902, one of nine children to parents William and Nancy Emmeline. His father was a minister, but the family also operated a printing operation in Edwards, Mississippi around 1900. W.A., as he was called, attended Mississippi schools, and then he went on for two years at Jackson College. Somewhere in this time period, he meets Lucille McAllister, and in 1922, they get married, and they have two sons, W.A. Scott III, who they call Junior, and Robert. When he arrives in Atlanta in 1925, he's already divorced, and he's headed here to attend Morehouse College. While there, he's a football star quarterback and one of the infamous Four Horsemen and a debate team star. After graduating, he travels to Alabama and he sells hosiery for the Real Silk Hosiery Company and even umbrellas. A natural-born salesman and entrepreneur, his second wife is quoted as saying he could sell an Eskimo ice. After Birmingham, he moves to Jacksonville, Florida for a job as a railway mill clerk between there and Miami. In his traveling, he sees the need for a directory, and he begins publishing the City Directory of Negro Businesses. Publishing was natural to him, as it was his family business and what he was exposed to while still in the womb. He would continue to move from city to city, finding opportunities to publish their directories as well. In 1928, he finds himself back in Atlanta, and he makes his way down to Auburn Avenue, where Benjamin Davis had been running the Atlanta Independent newspaper. The newspaper was on the decline, and the press equipment was available for purchase. So Scott decided to start his own newspaper, The Daily World. Black newspaper circulation was at a high point in the 30s, with 228 black newspapers in the United States and over 1.25 million copies in circulation. By 1931, the Scott family founded the Southern Newspaper Syndicate, and W.A. is a powerhouse. At this point, he's a super successful man with a thriving business, and this is all during the start of the Great Depression, I may add. He married his second wife, Mildred, in 1929, and that would end in divorce just two years later. In 1931, he tried marriage for a third time with Ella Ramsey. Ella signed a prenuptial agreement, and their union would only last for 18 months before W.A. asked her to go to Reno, Nevada to obtain a divorce. 
This was all so he could return to Atlanta and marry his secretary. In October of 1933, he and Agnes Maddox tie the knot. I'm sure it goes without saying, but this is very scandalous. We're talking about the 1930s in the black upper class community in Atlanta. So there was very much a push to maintain respectable lifestyles and be kind of the beacon of their race. Some claimed that this move by Scott was deliberate as the Maddox family was an established and prominent name in the black community. And it would give W.A. that quote unquote old money or old Atlanta connection for someone that was not from here and with quote unquote new money. Agnes Maddox was a graduate of Atlanta University, an AKA and a popular school teacher. W.A. and Agnes kept the entire thing a secret and their families did not know they married until they returned to the city to prepare to leave for their honeymoon. The Maddox family was upset, for lack of a better term. There is a letter that the mother sends to them on their honeymoon expressing her feelings about the whole thing, and it was just not kind. Um, It's also said that the family sent many threatening letters to W.A. directly. The story is that Scott went and met with the family right when they got back, and then by producing paper evidence that he was legally divorced from his previous three wives, he was able to smooth the whole thing over. At the start of 1934, they returned from their trip through Florida and Havana, Cuba, and the whole Maddox clan was there to welcome the new couple, except her brother George, who lived in Chicago. George arrives in Atlanta to visit his family on January 30th. That same day, W.A. Scott is out late, as he insisted on closing the deal to purchase the Oddfellows building down on Auburn Avenue. He pulled the car into his driveway and started to head towards the front door but he never made it. I.P. Reynolds, a writer of the Daily World, would call it, quote, the shot that was heard in nearly two million Negro homes, end quote. W.A. would be hit with three to four bullets in the hip and the back, and one exited through his abdomen. Initial reports claim that Scott was holding a briefcase full of cash, but none was taken. Later, its contents were deemed to be paperwork, but a set of keys were missing, and his wife made a public plea for their return. The gunman flees, and W.A. stumbles to the home of a neighbor, J.A. Britton, where the doctor is called. An ambulance takes him just a few blocks away to the William A. Harris Memorial Hospital. I talked about this in the African American Hospitals episode, but it was one of the only private hospitals for Black Atlantans at the time. Now, while W.A. is there, he tells six different people, at least, that George Maddox, his new brother-in-law, shot him. But he also tells his surgeon that he was shot because he was trying to buy the Oddfellows building. And so now the mystery begins. The theory that this may have something to do with the Oddfellows building is complicated, and so I'll try to explain this as briefly as I can. For those that are unfamiliar The Oddfellows are a fraternal organization, and the African-American Georgia Oddfellows construct their headquarters and office building down on Auburn Avenue in 1912. This was a monumental occasion, and it was dedicated by Booker T. Washington, along with Benjamin Davis, who really organized the project happening. By the 1930s, the country was in the midst of the Great Depression, so Davis and the building itself were financially struggling. Scott, along with several other bidders, made a play to purchase the building. Not only was he going to set up the Daily World and his newspaper syndicate there, but his ex-wife, Ella Ramsey, was running the Poro Beauty School. And the story is that he couldn't wait to become her landlord and kick her out. 
It turns out that the day of his shooting, Scott finalized the deal on the Oddfellows building, ensuring he would become the owner. The rumor was that the other interested parties even extended into the white Atlanta business world, and they did not want Scott to buy this building. W.A. lives for one week before succumbing to his injuries. And that entire time, he lives in constant fear of another attack. He has two off-duty policemen posted outside his room. The owner of the hospital, Dr. Powell, receives a threatening, kind of crude, hand-drawn letter. There's a gun drawn in the upper corner, and there's a written message that says, This 45 will get you. You took Scott into the hospital too soon. A few days later, Scott asked to transfer to Mac Vicker, which I also talked about in that same episode, and that was a private hospital on Spellman's campus. It was there that he died on February 7th at 31 years old. The day before he passed, he called attorney A.T. Walden to his bedside, and he drafts a will. 20% of the Daily World, his empire, would go to his brother, C.A., who was also named general manager. 20% went to his mother, His two sons' names were typed out, but next to the line was a handwritten 51%. Now, his kids are still little kids. I think they were 11 and 13 or or 10 and 12. Um, So even though they legally have these shares, the whole thing needs to be executed and overseen by guardians. And Scott names these people as their mother, Lucille, and attorney A.T. Walden. Scott's body was prepared by Davy T. Howard, the first African-American embalmer in the city of Atlanta, and his funeral was held inside Weed Street Baptist, which still stands on Auburn Avenue. The day before his funeral service, Atlanta got a rare falling of snow, and the entire city is pretty much shut down. By the following day, the day of the services, the weather had turned to rain, but was described as cold and miserable. That, however, did not stop 2,000 people from coming into the church. Some of them had to be turned away or had to stand on the sidewalk because there wasn't enough room for everyone. His casket is driven down to Lincoln Cemetery, where he is buried in close proximity to Tiger Flowers, who I talked about in episode 50. And this was like a badge of honor or like a high status thing. It's really funny because when I first went to visit Scott's grave, I was definitely confused by his placement in the cemetery because it's pretty random and seemingly unimportant. But once I saw the article about his funeral and it mentioned the proximity of his grave to flowers, I completely understood. Um, For this community, Tiger Flowers, who had not died long before Scott, was this epitome of black wealth and black success. And so for Scott, who also felt the same way and people felt the same way about what he had done, um, these two men were very equal. Almost immediately after the shooting, police arrested Scott's brother-in-law, George Maddox, and the coroner, Paul Donahue, called an inquest to be held at the funeral home. By the way, Donahue is the same coroner that presided over the Mary Fagan murder from the Leo Frank episode, and he's legally blind. Witnesses are called to testify, and we see his surgeon, his family, and eventually his brother-in-law speak. The Maddox family took extra care to ensure that they exonerated their son and kept their surname above the drama. This whole event is described as the longest inquest in 20 years, a whole nine hours, the last longest being Mary Fagan's. The coroner's jury took 14 minutes to decide that George Maddox, only 26 years old, was exonerated 
and Scott's death was, quote, at hands of party unknown, end quote. The family offers a $200 reward for information, and local businesses and churches donate money to the reward fund, bringing it up to about $660, which is nothing to sneeze at because it comes to about $12,000 today. Atlanta's white newspapers were saying that the Daily World's editorial policy was the reason for this murder, and CA actually writes kind of a letter to the editor that he sends to all the white papers saying how ridiculous that was. There was drama about A.T. Walden writing the will as the Scott family claimed that he inserted his name as guardian and gained interest in the paper and the building. Walden was close associates with Lorimer Milton and Clayton Yates, who ran a pharmacy in the Oddfellows building. Interestingly enough, the three men would go on to offer a bid for the building, even while Walden is controlling the Scott estate. W.A. had agreed to buy it the night he died for $45,000, and after his death, the men offered $54,000. We don't know exactly why, but the deal did not go through, and the Oddfellows building was purchased by a white real estate agent, for 47000 During the year that passed, C.A. Scott would privately be funding the family's white attorney, Reuben Garland, to run his own investigation and collect new evidence against George Maddox. Finally, there was enough new stuff gathered and it was presented to a grand jury and George is formally charged with murder. The case appeared to be open and shut. Maddox hadn't visited Atlanta in years, but magically appeared the day of Scott's murder W.A. told six different witnesses that George shot him while laying on his deathbed. Four witnesses placed Maddox near the crime scene that night. Um, They also said that Scott didn't cry out when he was shot, and then this may have suggested that he knew his assailant. And then finally, George Maddox hightailed it back to Chicago after the incident. It would go on to be the longest trial ever for a black man in Atlanta. Only one week. Following three hours of deliberation, the jury found George Maddox not guilty. The Daily World wrote about its outrage in the following editions of the paper, but honestly, there wasn't really an outcry. And that's because black-on-black crime did not keep the attention of white Atlanta. Even with a white judge, a white jury, and white attorneys, this was very much seen as an issue within the upper-class black community, and it was only brought up in publications that serve that community. We may never know who killed W.A. Scott. His family expressed that a week before being shot, he was very much on edge. He usually carried his cocked pistol on him at all times, except for that one fateful night. In front of his headstone, there's a long slab that details all of his professional accomplishments in detail with dates. And at the bottom, there's a quote that ends with, Ere his life was snuffed out by assassin's bullet. His life is an inspiration to young Negro men. The home where W.A. lived and was shot outside of still stands at the corner of Joseph E. Lowry and Spencer Street. The house was, up until a few weeks ago, identical to the way it looked in 1934. The garage, however, was demolished long ago. This story is full of tangible places you can still see today. The Harris Hospital building is just a few blocks from Washington High, the same for the MacVicker Hospital on Spelman's campus, Wheat Street Baptist, and the Oddfellows Building, both are still on Auburn Avenue, and of course, Lincoln Cemetery, where you can still visit Scott's grave. So there you have it. 
the story of W.A. Scott's life and unsolved murder. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, and then head on over to patreon.com forward slash archive Atlanta, where you can find episodes like this, as well as other extra Atlanta history bonus content. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll see you next week.